Imagine learning in a small group intimate setting while exploring unique European locations. EU Vet CE Experiences offers race-approved CE seminars that combine half-day lectures with time to relax and discover captivating cultures. The CE sessions are delivered in English, allowing you to elevate your career while vacationing with loved ones. Experience the perfect blend of learning and luxury at EU Vet CE Experiences interactive seminars in hand-picked European destinations. Elevate your knowledge and recharge simultaneously. Visit euveterinaryce.com to learn more. I don't want to attribute it all to just sheer luck because I think we do that too often. I think it's just lucky, right? But no, you work for what you want. You keep your mind open to opportunity. Welcome to Vet Life Reimagined. My guest today is someone I have admired for a long time. You've probably seen Dr. Ellen Lowry's name before. She worked with Hell's Pet Nutrition for 23 years and helped create some of the diets like Dental Diet, Hill's TD. She loves science and is an amazing leader. You'll learn about her journey of leadership, including becoming hospital director of Purdue right before the global pandemic and what she did to build trust in a thriving hospital team. Dr. Lowry gave a lot of fun stories and wisdom in this episode. So on to the conversation. So when did you know that you even wanted to get into veterinary medicine? Well, I was one of those that knew from a very young age. I mean, I I can pinpoint it to about first or second grade. I can't remember exactly which, but driven by a couple of things. One, I like many of us, I just have a great compassion for animals. And so I was, you know, that child that was always bringing home whatever stray I found, um, even though I didn't often get to keep them. Um, But I remember, and this is the funny part of the story, that in about first or second grade, my teacher asked us to write a list of, you know, what we wanted to do when we grew up, right? And always being the people pleaser, I thought, does she want the real thing or does she want the, you know, made up thing? And so I think my first choice was Cinderella and my second choice was a veterinarian. And so, you know, now I always joke and say, I'm kind of living the dream. You know, it, it, it just feels like I got what I wanted to do. And, and so I just knew that I never wavered from wanting to be a veterinarian. Um, and then as I got older and, you know, really interested in science and math and medicine and it really you know, clicked. And so it was just one of those things with me. I, you know, once I stated that's what I wanted to do, that's what I pursued. Nice. And and so you did, you, you went to vet school. What was vet school like for you? And did you have an idea of what you wanted to do after vet school going in? Did that change at all? It, it absolutely did change. So, so veterinary school, I love veterinary school, but it was hard. I put myself through school, uh, undergraduate and veterinary school and graduate school. And so, and I didn't really have strong family support. So I didn't have any financial support um, from my family, like many of us that want to go into the profession. So as an undergraduate, I worked two jobs and took a full course load. And, and during vet school, I actually waitressed about 20 hours a week. And so it was, you know, yeah, it was, I look back at that time and I think, you know, I did what I had to do at the time. But I wouldn't recommend it to anybody else, right? <laughs> because I definitely wasn't the top of my class. Not that that's the thing that you have to be in best school, but I think I missed out on some true learning 
um, and certainly some collegiality with my classmates because while they were all, you know, socializing and, and getting rid of some stress on the weekends, I was going to work. And so, but that's okay, right? Because I did what I wanted to do, what I needed to do to get where I wanted to be. I actually went to veterinary school thinking that I was going to be a large animal veterinarian. We had, we didn't live on a farm. We lived on some acreage, but I always liked the variety and I liked the idea of working outside, you know, and, and kind of being physically active all day long. Um, but that quickly changed, you know, as I, as I started into veterinary school and I realized that I, I didn't have a lot of experience. I certainly didn't have a lot of equine experience, but I gravitated towards small animal medicine from there. And so that's, that's where I ended up, you know, focusing on was, was companion animal, small animal medicine. And you went into clinical practice and how did you get recruited to go and do a PhD? Well, that's a great question. And (laughs) I was, I, I was in clinical practice for about a year and, and not to speak illy of anybody in the profession, but my, that year wasn't very good for me. Um, you know, the, the veterinarian that I was working for, um, very skilled, very experienced, you know, owned his own practice, but just wasn't what I thought that I wanted in a small animal practice. And so I just, I really struggled then with what I wanted to do. I had had my first child um, in the August after I graduated from veterinary school. So I also had a you know young child and, and just dealing with some things. So I happened to be back in the Manhattan area and ran into one of my professors and said, hey, gosh, you know, I'm just thinking through some other things. And, and he said, you know what, I've got a graduate student position open. Would you be interested? And, and of course, my first response was, no, <laughs> because, you know, I had just gone through, what, eight years of, of college and I had student loan debt and I was I was done. I'm like, I just I need to work. Um, and he said, just try it. You know, you can enroll as a special student, meaning that you don't have to take classes yet or you can take one course, but you can just get your toe wet, you know, and see how that goes. And then once I did that, I just fell in love with it. You know, doing your Ph.D. is is different from going to veterinary school from the perspective of your your focus down on one area, sort of like, you know, when you decide as a veterinarian to pursue a specialty, right, you you really get to focus and learn and deep, you know, do that deep dive down into that specialty area. And so I quickly, quickly fell in love with it um, and uh, became a full time graduate student. And so that's how I got you know interested into and, and that opportunity came my way. I, you know, I didn't actively seek it. I just had some relationships and, you know, was open enough to say, I think I need to look at something different. And that's how that opportunity came my way. And it ended up that at that very point in time, Hills Pet Nutrition was thinking about a dental food. Dr. Mark Morris Jr. had had approached um, Hills with this idea and Dr. John Heffron, who was one of my co-major professors, had just retired from the ADA. He was a pharmaceutical chemist. He'd gotten a position as a research um, educator at KU. And then my other co-major professor at K-State was like, oh, hey, I've got a new graduate student, right? And so that, you know, it all just happened. And I happened to be in the right place at the right time. Um, but I don't want to attribute it all to just sheer luck, because I think we do that too often. I think it's just lucky, right? But no, you work for what you want. You keep your mind open to opportunity. 
And that's how, you know, I got into the area of veterinary dentistry and, and dental research. And so it was amazing how it came together. And, and uh, you know, I, I really didn't know what I was doing. I'd never really thought about clinical dentistry. We didn't get much of that in veterinary school when I went to school. And looking back, it's like it's it's been it was wonderful. You know, it was it gave me so much opportunity. I had two very strong major professors with very different, you know, um, approaches and they were great mentors and, and good coaches, and it just really helped me develop into the person um, that I am today. Oh, wow. I, th- I think mentorship is so huge, and I, I know that you're mentoring a lot of, of people as well. Speaking of, you probably didn't expect this to be part of your career journey either, is you know, in your PhD, you're working with the the Mark Morris and and you actually, I think they recruit you to go into industry after your PhD. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's right. And uh, thank you for bringing that up because <laughs> sure, I didn't know what I was going to do, right? And I didn't know if I would pursue becoming a um, you know a, a veterinary dental specialist. I didn't know if I'd go back into practice, but I knew that I loved the research work. You know, I liked the scientific part of that. And so I was very fortunate because, uh, you know, along the way, developing the methodologies to evaluate plaque and, and calculus in dogs and cats and and working very closely with Hills, you know, I was truly the masked or the blinded, you know, scientist. I knew they were thinking about something, but we went through lots of iterations of different types of products, right? And And I was kept very out of the loop because obviously that was very proprietary to Hills Pet Nutrition. So yes, I was I was designing the studies and and managing those types of things and and evaluating, you know, plaque and tartar accumulation, but I didn't really know what their end goal was. And so and I've got a funny story to tell you about that in, in a little bit. But but yeah, then when I was getting close to graduation, they were like, hey, we're getting ready now to launch this dental diet that 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 you've been working on and, and helping develop along the way. And would you be interested in joining the company as a dental scientist? And, and of course I was like, Oh my gosh, again, another sort of dream come true. Right. And I always referred to Hills as a bit like a mini university. Yeah. I worked at the research and development division surrounded by excellent, you know, nutritionists, veterinary nutritionists, veterinary specialists from different areas, internal medicine, orthopedic surgery, engineers, uh, food scientists, we had an on-site library. I mean, it was just like, wow, this, how could this get any better? Right. And plus, as I shared earlier, I had a high student loan debt. So the opportunity to go into a position um, at a, at a decent salary that had great benefits that didn't require me to relocate geographically was, yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. So wait, I, I'm curious now, what was the story from the oh, finding? So the story was, um, you know, again, being being fairly blinded to what the actual end result for Hills was going to be. Um, I did go to one of their meetings at, at one time and, you know, I was young and naive and, and I walked into the Hills conference room with all the Hills executives and the scientists there with a IMS portfolio in my hand. (laughs) (laughs) And because I had gotten that at a conference uh, and, you know, I didn't even put it together that, oh, I'm going to a pet food company that might be a competitor with another pet food company, just walking in, nobody knew who I was. And there I was with my IMS portfolio, taking my notes, you know? So, (laughs) so yeah, it was, uh, you know, you, you, 
you realize as you go through life and you and you have many different opportunities and you work with a variety of different people, just kind of how naive you were in your younger days. And and that's why things like this that you're doing are so important because it, it helps share with earlier in career, you know, veterinarians and veterinary nurses, you know, what's out there, you know, what they can do and, and you know, how they can pursue those opportunities. Yeah. And you know, I know you loved the science so much, but I, I think it's kind of interesting talking about, you know, just walking in with all these executives and, and you, you did a lot of R and D with Hills, uh, but then you also got a, a very different role more on the marketing side of things. And I, I think this is also an area that not only veterinary professionals, but I, I think people outside of veterinary medicine forget that you know, veterinary professionals can bring some very unique skills to that area of, you know, for you, the Hills business. So what, like, how did you transfer into the marketing side? And what did you think about that experience? Yeah, I, honestly, it was kind of a leap of faith. Um, and <laughs> and the background to that was, you know, I worked in R&D for 10 years um, with Hills and, and I really loved it. But we had launched, you know, prescription diet, canine TD, prescription diet, feline TD, both science diet, um, canine and feline oral care. Um, hairball was actually a technology that was built out of the dental research. And, and so, you know, after a decade of doing all that, we had this product portfolio. And then it was like, okay, well, sort of what's next? And I always share that that was sort of my adult lesson when you work for anybody, right? When their priorities shift your priorities shift because you're employed by them. And, and so I had the opportunity to, to stay in the research area and expand my research to, you know, gastroenterology research and that type of thing. But that, that, and that was intriguing. And I thought, well, yeah, that, that could be, you know, that could be really um, another great step in my scientific career. But at the same time, I was also on um, a veterinary leadership task force with Hills Pet Nutrition, and I was working alongside veterinarians that worked at the corporate office. And so I'm like, hey, I wonder if that's something, you know, that I would enjoy doing. I've always liked the, the business side of things, but, you know, I I was a bit of a scientific snob, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I thought, well, all the real work happens in R&D, right? You know, marketing, what the heck, what the heck do people do in marketing, Right. And so, but I, again, I had a good mentor who said, you know, why don't you give it a try? And so I did, t- you know, again, I, I always jokingly say I, I went to the dark side, um, left R&D and went to the commercial side of the business. But um, I, you know, I, I took that leap. I took a position um, as an associate manager in, in marketing. It was a lateral move, you know, across, meaning that there was no, you know, grade increase. It wasn't a promotion. Um, it was a, it was an opportunity to try something new and different. And I, again, it was like, wow, look at all this cool stuff and very important stuff that we do in marketing. You know, we translate the very scientific message to something that's relevant, um, obviously to pet owners because we want them to purchase the food, right? You can have the best scientific technology in a food, but if nobody buys it, you know, it's not going to do the company any good. And I got to work with so many different individuals, you know, traditional marketing trained individuals, um, finance individuals, supply chain team members. It just it was like there's a whole nother side to a successful business 
And I got to understand the very important synergy between those departments, right? You, you've got to do the research and you want that to be evidence-based and end up producing a, a product that, that's important for the health of dogs and cats. But you have to figure out, okay, what's your margin going to be? How are you going to market that? What else might we do with this product? Is it going to be important enough to veterinarians for them to want to recommend it? And so all of those things um, just really evolved my my career growth. You know, I, I, I my eyes were opened up to a whole nother side of what it takes to be a successful business. Yes. And did that influence your desire to want to go and get an MBA as well? It did. It did. You know, I, I questioned that a lot. I, I know I've always loved math um, anyway. And, and but I kept thinking okay, you know, should I get an MBA? Would it be beneficial to me to get a business degree? I did have a, a, a good mentor that said, you know, it, it you don't need it to progress, but if you want to do it because it's useful to you or helpful to you, then that would be the right reason to do it. And fortunately, again, working for a corporation, um, I was in a position um, managing our veterinary consultation service team, and it was just a good point in my career to go ahead and, and do the MBA. And I did it um, at through the University of Kansas, so KU, but I actually had to go to their satellite campus in Kansas City for classes. So I, I specifically chose to do an in-person brick and mortar degree program because I'm a better learner that way. And so I would work until 5.30 or 6, drive to Kansas City an hour and take my classes, which in a compressed uh, curriculum like that, you know, classes would be like 6.15 to 10.30 or 6.30 to, you know, 10.30. And because you're trying, you're on eight week semesters versus 16 week. And I would get done with my class at, you know, 10.30 in Kansas City. I would drive almost two hours home because I lived um, west of Topeka where the Hills corporate office was. And then I would get up the next day and, you know, go to work. And I, I tried to take two courses every eight week block so that I could get through it. But I went into it again. I wasn't doing it for that next step in my career. I was doing it because I, I thought that the value that I would gain from that would make me a better leader, would make me a better employee. Um, and I would learn some things, you know, along the way. And so so it was it was an opportunity. And of course, you know, again, working for corporate, um, the tuition was paid through the corporate tuition reimbursement program. So I had to obviously pay my personal expenses, my gas and that type of thing in my books and then any other fees the university would have. But that was a great opportunity as well. You know, after years of funding my own education, it was nice to have this benefit from the company that I worked for. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so since not very many veterinarians go go and get an MBA, what do you feel are some of the, the biggest things that you learned from that program that you could carry on? To be honest with you, the finance part of it was the most important thing that I learned because I've always been good with numbers. I like numbers. I like accounting and that type of thing. But actually looking at the profit and loss statements and, and understanding what it means to have a profitable margin, understanding your fixed expenses versus your variable expenses, those types of things really helped me understand why certain decisions are made in a business and that profit that you make, that's a good thing, no matter where you work as a veterinarian, right? It's good to make a profit because you can invest that back into your business. And so, you know, that that's hard, I think, sometimes for veterinarians, you know, because we we do get a lot of 
misunderstanding from our clients sometimes that, you know, if we love animals so much, why do we need to make money? Well, we have to make money to pay for our employees, to pay our employees a good wage, to invest back into, you know, great equipment for the practice and um, and those types of things. And so I, that the financial part of it was the biggest benefit I got from it. But I also focused a lot on HR and leadership. And so just learning a lot of things about organizational management and organizational psychology and those types of things were, it was a good mix for me. Yes. I'm fascinated by psychology as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the the business mindset of things I think is really important. I still remember going, probably even before vet school, honestly, when I was talking to people about wanting to be a veterinarian was, you know, people would tell me, well, you're not going to do it for the money, uh, right? It, it, you were constantly kind of drilled in this, that it was a almost sacrificial, you know, official kind of role that, you know, you're going to just be this broke, but saving every animal every day you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And I, I, I hope that we are trying to transition that mindset. Yes, we still have a, a huge heart for our animals, but back to what you said, you know, making money is good. That's a tool and a resource that you can go and do even more help and invest in your people, invest in the in the clinic to do better medicine. So I, I do hope that we are trying to shift into, into a slightly different money mindset. Thank you for sharing that. Well, you know, I do think it's gotten um, better in the curriculum for, for mm. veterinary students as well. So they are um, more exposed now to, to business and to, you know, managing a practice and and those types of things, which I think is really, really helpful. Um, and because, you you know, it is a wonderful thing to own your own practice or, or you know, be a partner in a practice. But if that's not everybody's thing, that's OK, too. Um, but it does it does help. And it is hard. You know, it's hard when our clients come to us and say, well, obviously you don't love animals, you know, if you're not willing to do this for free. And 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 that's tough. You know, I remember one of my one of my first experiences working with a veterinarian in New York. We had um, a client come in. I was I was filling in at the front desk and the client came in and they wanted their puppy, but they weren't going to pay for it. And I remember the veterinarian saying to me, we will not discharge this puppy until they pay. And I remember thinking, oh, well, they, you know, these people, they need their puppy. They want their puppy. Can't they pay later? And he said, trust me, they need to pay up front. Um, and lo and behold, you know, they they were adamant they couldn't pay, but they went out and came back in five minutes later and, and paid. And so, you know, it, and it is hard because because we want we have such a heart and such a compassion for animals. And we certainly don't want any animal to not get the medical attention that's needed but we can't give away our services. And so. Yeah, absolutely. So you were talking about not everybody has a, a goal to own their own practice or, or get into the business side of things and, and kind of returning back to your career goal. You, it sounds like you had a fantastic job. You were loving it. You were doing very well. And now you, you move on to a university so what was that transition in from industry and then going into academia?
We would like to thank our sponsor, VetBadger, the all-in-one practice management software that puts relationships first. Created by working veterinary parents, VetBadger provides all the communication, team workflow, and medical management tools you need to run an efficient practice and get home to the relationships that matter most. In support of parents in VetMed, VetBadger will be offering a signed copy of the book, Pregnancy and Postpartum Considerations for the Veterinary Team by Emily Singler to everyone who registers for a demo between Mother's Day, May 12th, and Father's Day, June 16th. To register, visit VetBadger.com and find the link in the description below. You know, I thought that it would be a wonderful, easy transition, but the reality is it was challenging for me because of the difference in stress level. And, you know, there's research that talks about a certain level of stress is good for you. And if you go from a from a high level of stress to a very low level of stress, that's a bad thing. And 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 so, you know, there's there's a balance in there, just like just like everything else. I had worked you know, with Hills for 23 years, I had a wonderful career there and, and, you know, they're a wonderful company, but I was just ready. I was, I was getting a little bit restless. I wanted to do something different. And again, I had opportunities. I could have, I, you know, taken a different position within the company, um, but just life in general and the place that, that we were at, we were ready for something different. And it just happened that Kansas State University at their Olathe campus had a professor of practice position open. And I had always loved teaching and, you know, I, I loved the idea of being a part of a university. And so I thought that would be fantastic. Uh, and it was, it was a very nice position. I really enjoyed my students, but I was teaching graduate students, not veterinary students. And so in, it was in a master's degree program in biomedical sciences. And so a lot of the, uh, my students were individuals that were working in industry in the pet in the um, animal industry of some sort and some of them had a desire to go to veterinary school so there was a little bit of that balance but it was it's a smaller satellite campus and it just didn't have enough of that mix of all the things that I liked that really inspire me and fortunately I got the opportunity to come and interview for the hospital director position at Purdue and you know it, again my first response was, well, we just moved. So, gee, you know, we put all these boundaries on ourselves. So we can't really, you know, move again. Um, we just built a house. So, gosh, we can't really leave that. And then that imposter syndrome that steps in all the time to all of us is that hospital director, you know, I, I've never worked in a teaching hospital since I finished my PhD program. How could I possibly move into a hospital director position? And then, you know, as I thought through that and actually went to ABMA and I realized I was I, I really missed being immersed in the veterinary profession. And so I went back and talked with Kara, with my wife, Kara. And of course, she's my biggest champion. Right. She's like, you've got to go do this. You know, you know, you'll love this. You'll be great at it. And and, you know, I'll support whatever whatever you want to do, um, even if that meant leaving the house that we built that she was actually very much in love with. And so, so I came and I interviewed and, and, you know, the minute I stepped in the doorway of Purdue, I was like, wow, you know, I just, I, just being at a college of veterinary medicine um, and kind of coming, having that opportunity to do that, take that step in my career was just, I just knew immediately that if I was fortunate enough to be offered this position, that it would be a yes. And so, you know, and I, and I was, when Dean Reed called me, I was, 
I was a bit stunned because honestly, when he called, when when he called, I thought he's going to tell me, you know, that thank you for interviewing, but but we've gone a different direction. And and when he said that, you know, they'd like to offer me the position, I was just like, wow. I mean, it was just fantastic. And so, you know, I I probably said yes almost immediately. And and we, you know, we packed up and we and we moved here. And so it's been fantastic. You know, there have been a lot of challenges. You know, I joined. Purdue um, in February of 2020, so shortly before we went into the global pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. And I knew coming into the position that Purdue was constructing a new hospital complex. And so I, you know, again, great unknown for me. I'd never been involved in, a, you know, building a small hospital, much less a big footprint of a, of a teaching hospital. And, and so, but I, I liked challenges. I liked the idea of the opportunity. I knew I would have a lot to learn. But I also knew that I had leadership skills that would transfer over to the position. And so, again, I, I trusted myself. You know, I had great support from my wife and we took a chance and moved here. Yes. Well, I, I want to thank you for talking about the imposter syndrome, because I actually I was listening to a, a podcast that you did that was right before I think you accepted or right around the time you accepted and, and you you talked about that on you wondered if you had the right credentials to go into academia and 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 for someone like myself who admires you so much and and you know sees all the work that you've done it it was a little like oh wow so that doesn't go away <laughs> yeah. so you know we're all human and we all want to to do our best and so sometimes we we question that so i'm glad that you you thought a little bit longer and trusted in yourself and were able to to do this. I am also extremely passionate about supporting veterinary students. I believe they are the future of our of our profession, and so being able to support them is such an important role. So what you do is so so important to to our profession. And I, you know, it didn't even click that that was right before the pandemic as well. So what has been your experience? you know, working very closely with vet students, having to lead through hard times like that. I mean, we've never experienced something like that. So what has been your experience through this? Well, thank you for asking that question, because I I think that now that we're sort of post-pandemic, even though we know that COVID is still around and we're still susceptible to the virus, I think we've sort of forgotten all the good stuff and the hard stuff that we did going through the pandemic, because you're right. Nobody knew um, what this would actually look like um, in real life. And in fact, I, I taught One Health when I was at K-State. And I remember telling my students, at any moment in time, we could be in a global pandemic, right? And then, but, and we talked about the high level things, but we didn't talk about the nitty gritty low level. How does this affect your life every day? You know, what do you do with, with working parents who suddenly have to figure out a way for their children to have online education? You know, what do you do at a veterinary school when when you work closely together managing cases, but you can't you have to be six feet apart? You know, how do you do classwork? How do you have this incredible group of faculty members that that are wonderful teachers, but haven't taught online? And so because there's so many differences. Right. And and then what do you do? How do you care for your patients? How do you manage your your client interactions when everybody's masked and and you've got this car side, you know, service going on. And how do you collect revenue when everything looks looks much different? And so, looking back on it, several things that really helped me was was one. 
you know, the, one of the things that I love about being in academia is you have a lot of critical thinkers, right? And so everybody was invested into reading the literature and, and sharing their ideas and collaborating with other universities. You know, what are you guys doing? And how do we bring that here? And, and then working with the team here, right? Because the, the wonderful thing about leadership is, is sometimes it can feel very isolating and very lonely, but you've got an incredible team with you. You know, and so you reach out to your to your experts, to your network, um, and together you come up with what's the next plan. And the other thing that really helped me was was continuously reminding myself and everybody in the hospital that this is new. We're all in this together. We're going to get through this together, but we're going to try things. And if those things don't work, that's okay. We're going to pivot and we're going to try something else. Right, because we, we didn't know, um, but that's sometimes a challenge in academia because we want to dot every I, cross every T, and have everything perfect before we do anything. But I had to continuously remind everybody that we've got to be nimble, we've got to be flexible, we have to be compassionate because everybody is going through this differently, uniquely. Right, some of us might have had aging parents that lived with us. Some of us might be immunocompromised or, or live with immunocompromised individuals. Some of us had young children at home. Schools were shut down. There were all these types of things to deal with, and, and we just figured it out together. Um, it required a lot of communication. It required the ability to be decisive when certain decisions needed to just be made and to recognize that some at sometimes unpopular decisions would need to be made, but that's part of being a leader. And just going all in as a servant leader, and I'm here for everybody. Um, and, you know, the thing that would keep me up at night really was, how do I keep my team safe? Right? That, that was what I wanted to do. I didn't, you know, it's like, we need to figure this out. We need to figure out how we still deliver our mission. So how we still educate our students, how we still serve the animals that come to us for, the, for their care, how we serve our clients, how we serve our referring DBM community. But most importantly, how does my team stay safe? And so that was really important to me. I also brought in some humor. You know, I would I do the updates as needed. And I, you know, I'd pull down the funny memes from social media and just like, hey, you know, I remember one time we, we got some hand sanitizer. And you remember that sometimes supplies were in very de high demand. So it was hard to get certain things. And my customer supply manager at the time had sourced some hand sanitizer, but it smelled like tequila. <laughs> and so, you know, and people were like, you, you, you do get this group of people that based out of fear or exhaustion or whatever, sometimes go to the negative side versus the positive side. And so, you know, it was like, oh, this hand sanitizer smells like tequila. So I'm like, hey, this is the feedback I'm getting. The hand sanitizer smells like tequila. You know, use it. Don't drink it. Uh, on to the next thing. <laughs> Because you gotta, you gotta be, you know, humorous. I recognize that we went, you know, masks on, masks off. Oh, masks back on, masks back off. We had some people that didn't want to wear masks at all. We had other people that got to wear masks all the time. We got to put ten masks on, right, to be protected. And and so you just had to realize that all of that was born from an unknown. None of us knew really what was the right thing to do. There were a variety of different scientific opinions coming in as well. Um, we were all navigating through our own fears of what, what was going to potentially personally affect us through this pandemic. And so that's where I think in general as a person, but especially in a leadership position, you know, you put on that big hat of empathy and, you know, and you try to 
to not let the criticisms or sometimes the very aggressive um, feedback affect you doing the right thing. Um, and that can be hard, right? Because we get worn out too. And so, but but you just, you try to stay that course. You know, I used to say, just let's keep our eye on the horizon. Let's, you know, let's, let's, it's one day at a time. You know, we're going to just do what we, we can do together and we will get through this. And we did get through it. Wow. And I also want to acknowledge that not only does it sound like you were leading well and all those points were amazing and helpful points on, on leading teams, but you you were brand new. So you had to do all of that while also like building trust w- with everybody because nobody knew you. So on top of that, you were having to establish brand new relationships. So I want to acknowledge that that, I mean, that in itself, had you not had a pandemic is already can be very challenging to, to establish a new leadership role and, and build trust with people. So I, I want to commend you. Wow. That, that sounds very hard, but I I'm sure, you know, in hindsight, it has made a very strong team, uh, at the university and, you know, you, you guys are unstoppable, I'm sure now. Well, you know, it, it, between that, I always say that every position in our hospital is critical to the success of what we do. Um, and again, you know, teaching all the way through patient care. And so, but, but you're right. It was, it was a challenge at first because here I was right. An, an ex executive, not a specialist. Um, coming in to lead a teaching hospital. And yeah, I, there was, I think there was a, I think from the staff side, there was a lot of trust, but from the faculty side, there was not as much trust. Um, and then going into the pandemic, it, it was, it was really challenging. And I don't know if you've ever read the book, Radical Candor, yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, but as I think through that, you know, and you think about the, um, the conversation based on the the trust level and how much you care about somebody. And, and I really, it kind of pinpointed, I was in that obnoxious aggression you know, um, quadrant for a while because the team didn't know who I was and why was I here and what was I going to do? And I didn't have a chance to build that with them. And so, but as we navigated through the pandemic, one of the other things that I did that was very important was I, I tried to spend time with sections, you know, with the different sections. So actually, you know, blocking out a day to just go, okay, today I'm going to spend the day with soft tissue surgery and I'm just going to see how their things are going. And, um, and that was very, very helpful too. And, um, you know, that, that's, again, that's, that's what we need to do, I think, as a leader. You know, we should be down trying to truly understand what our teams are going through so that we can help provide the solutions for them. And probably my best example of that is staffing here was a challenge. We were already short-staffed. Then our caseload exploded in the pandemic. And so then we felt that short staffing. And of course, then we had people out and those types of things. And so I invested in staffing very heavily. And it's what, three and a half years later. And I finally feel like we can breathe, right? We've been through the the major part of the pandemic. We've occupied, you know, we finished the construction of the new hospital complex and we made the big move and we occupied and we've been operating out of the new complex for a year now. And, and it just feels like, okay, now, now we can breathe a little bit um, and we can really focus on what we love to do. Mm. Well, as, as we're kind of running out of time, 
What is something that is on your mind right now that you would like to kind of impart as wisdom or encouragement to the veterinary profession? Yeah, you know, I, I will always say that we we are grateful to work in the best profession that there is and that there are so many opportunities within the profession. There are also a lot of challenges. You know, we're, we're feeling that now um, as a teaching hospital. We've got different expectations from students, which, which is a good thing, right? Because we evolve as, as the years go by, things change. So, so we're, you know, looking at how do we um, continue to evolve to meet the student educational needs and desires? How do we continue to evolve to um, meet the needs and desires of our house officers? Um, everything from wages to what their work-life balance looks like. Not to forget our faculty and our staff, right? Everybody has needs. And so how do you deliver against those needs for the good of people um, that I serve, um, but also for the good of the hospital that, that is a self-funded unit, really. And so we need that revenue to do those good things, um, to make sure that our staff wages are, are in a good place, that I can give healthy you know, merit increases each year, that we can incentivize you know, startup packages for faculty members and do wellness opportunities for house officers and, and all of those types of things. So, so I think my, you know, having thought through that, my response to that is having that growth mindset to me is the one thing. Well, I, I'll say the two things, and I think they go hand in hand. I think developing your emotional intelligence and having a growth mindset, I think no matter what you do in life, those are your keys to success. It really doesn't matter how educated you are. Um, it doesn't matter whether your job is 100% good or maybe not so good or a mix like most jobs are, what your family life is like or what your pools are. If you've got those two things, if you work on those two things, I think that that's just the key to success um, because, because life is a journey and it, it is not all good, right? It's a series of ups and downs and ups and downs and, and you've got to navigate the downs Remember what you've been through, right? You've climbed a lot of mountains successfully. You've got some mountains ahead of you and you're going to climb those just as successfully. And so, so you know, as I think about the things that have happened in, in my life and, and the things that I've had the opportunity to, to work with others and, and mentor and coach others, it really is, you know, everybody needs to develop that self-awareness and self-accountability because life is what we make of it, right? We can't rely on somebody else to make it good for us. Um, but we can make it the best life we can. And we can bring our best self um, to life every day. Ooh, that's powerful. Yes. Well, I always like to wrap up with the final four questions, just as a, a fun way to, to end. And the first question is, is there something that people may get wrong about you? Yeah, yes. I'll tell you what people have gotten wrong about me throughout the years is I'm an introvert, like most veterinarians. <laughs> um, and in that can sometimes come across as being cold or not caring, but I am completely the opposite. You know, I am um, a very warm person. I care about people deeply, sometimes to my detriment. Um, and I would I would do anything um, for my team. I would do anything for my family, um, sometimes to the detriment of myself. But um, so I have to watch that as well. But yeah, I I, uh, I used to get the the feedback that oh. We thought you were nice, but kind of a snob. And because I'm not easily conversational, 
right? And so, but I've worked on that and I've come to realize that that I like engaging with people, um, but it's not it's not an easy skill, a natural skill, I guess, for me. Oh, well, no one will ever notice in this interview. So <laughs> you've been fantastic. The second question is, do you have a hidden skill or interest? And hidden just maybe not as many people know about. Well, I I really like snakes. Really? <laughs> and people probably don't realize that. Um, but I actually just joined a social media group on snake identification. So I've, I've really been enjoying that. I've always liked reptiles in general. Um, so that's one thing. I think the other thing that people don't realize is I really like um, extreme hobbies, if that's the right word. Like I love the, um, like they call it the sky coaster, where they strap you in and they take you up about 300 feet and then pull you pull a ripcord and you just sort of fly down. I've done sort of an extreme, not a, not a, not a typical bungee jump type of thing, but you're, again, you're strapped into it like a circular disc thing. And then it is a bungee thing. So, so those types of roller coasters, those kinds of things, I really enjoy those types of things. Oh, wow. Respect. Um, <laughs> I am not. Is Kara too, or does she watch? Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> she watches from a distance. She carries the stuff, as she would say. Um, and sometimes it makes her a little nervous because she's worried that I may not actually get off the thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Um, the third question is: Do you have anything that's still on your bucket list that you would like to do? You've done a lot. But well, you know, interestingly, I've done a lot with my career, but I've always also really focused on my family life and, and you know, personal hobbies and those types of things. So, so I, you know, honestly, I really love my work and I love my pets. I love my wife. I love my family. And so you just mix all that in, right? You know, I remember somebody once asking me, so what do you, what do you do as a hobby? I'm like, well, I go to Walmart and I, you know, I go to the kids sports things and, but that's okay because, because that is my life. But we have recently stepped into the world of, of RV glamping and we really do like that. And so we do look forward to exploring more of the United States through those experiences. And yeah. Yeah. Well, and that kind of back to what you said, kind of wraps it all. You put the kids and the, and the pets and the RV and go. Yeah, and it's it, all. Exactly. <laughs> I like that. And finally, the last question is what is something you are most grateful for? Oh gosh, there are so many things, but I, I think I'm, I'm most grateful just for the opportunity to experience life in so many wonderful ways. Right. And so I am I am really grateful that I have Kara in my life. You know, she she really is the light of my life, the love of my life. And she is the one that gives me the courage and the support um, to try different things and, and do different things. And I'm very grateful for my entire family. You know, we've got um, three wonderful children, three going on four grandchildren. And it's just again, you know, I think life is what you make of it. Just experiencing that and letting yourself do different things and and not putting all the boundaries on your life that I have to do this or I have to look like this or you know I have to have this kind of a job and just allow yourself you know, I'm just grateful for that opportunity to just um, just enjoy my life 
Wow, is what I have to say about that conversation. I'm grateful for this Vet Life Reimagined podcast as it allows me to meet such wonderful humans like Dr. Ellen Lowry. She mentioned her wife, Kara, who is an amazing veterinary professional who also has made a huge impact in vet med, especially in empowering veterinary technicians. Ellen and Kara are some of the most kind, generous humans, so go way back to the beginning of the podcast to find Kara Burns' episode. I'll link the episode in the description. Thank you for being on this vet life adventure with me. Make sure you hit that follow on your podcast app and go subscribe over on YouTube. Those actions greatly support this podcast. If you have a few dollars to help support as well, click the link below that says support the show. And thank you and join us next time.